Welcome back to .NET Rocks. This is Carl Franklin. And this is Richard Campbell. And we are live on Bullhorn again. Bullhorn.fm slash .NET Rocks. Go and subscribe. And then when we go live, you can hang out with us. And, uh, you know, it's it's fun. Yeah. It's and you just get to, another way that we can. You know, well, and you can actually participate in the show, but you also get to hear the theme music and stuff, which you don't, yeah. you know. Uh, it's if you want to see how we how the sausage is made on a routine basis, and sometimes sometimes our guests are showing their butts to the camera. Yeah, that's right. And sometimes taking apart furniture by the guests is taking apart furniture. <laughs> <laughs> it happens. I'm sorry. It's uh... that's that's what happens. It's okay. okay. So yeah, Scott Hunter is with us, and he's actually putting furniture together or taking it apart while we record. Yeah. Because he's moving today, apparently the movers are there. So yeah, so I mean, I mean, this, this, you know, the story there is my uh, my youngest daughter just graduated high school, and so we are technically entering the empty nesting phase, which means um, we don't have to live in the city anymore. We can live a little further away, and so we uh, we're in the process of moving out the country a little bit. Hmm, that's cool, man. Wow. Yeah, we're we're in the in the midst of that contemplation too. I, we're well, as we're recording this, we're like three days away from my youngest getting married, so. Things are about to get weird. <laughs> um, That'll be next, Richard. I don't even think about that. Yeah, yeah, no, I wasn't going to think about it either, Scott. But it's definitely it's a thing. There it is. Yeah, it's there. <laughs> well, hey, uh, why don't we uh, start to show off right with a little thing we call Better Know Framework. <laughs> All right, buddy, what do you got? Well, uh, this is a blog post by Yang Cambridge mm -hmm. uh, from June 9th, just a few days ago from this recording. Right. It's called Code Review, How to Make Enemies. <laughs> 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 the gist of it is, you know, there's people at work that annoy you, and sometimes you need to get back at them. And the best way to do it is by passive aggressive comments in code reviews. And you know, if I could, if I could summarize the whole thing with, uh, you know, with one sentence, it's make your coworkers spend a lot of their day rewriting code that works perfectly well. <laughs> I'm, I'm presuming this is a sarcastic thing of what not to do when doing code reviews. Like, well, of course, yeah. but uh, you know, if you want to make enemies, uh, here are the steps. This is so, the steps, absolutely. Yeah. So the step one: code style comments. Oh, God. Yep, most companies have code style guidelines, learn them, and then start asking for changes that are not explicitly mentioned. If the code style guidelines haven't mentioned something, it's a perfect chance to ask for pointless changes that will just cause your target more work. <laughs> Did they correctly type hint the methods in the unit test class? No. Better tell them to add void to make it clear to everyone in the future that unit tests don't return anything. And it goes on and on. Ask for changes that make no difference. Uh, long delays. Take your time when responding. Take at least 24 hours, maybe 48 hours to do anything regarding code review. <laughs> Claim to be busy with other things when challenged. The goal here is to make their pull requests stale. <laughs> <laughs> Increase the number of merge conflicts. Yeah. Step four, demand they add bugs. <laughs> Asking for changes is an excellent way of adding work, but demanding changes to cause negative side effects is a fantastic way to add work. They need <laughs> they need to work to add the change, and then they look silly when the bug is discovered, and then they need to fix the bug. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Layers this of enemies. <laughs> oh, step seven. Ignore their comments. <laughs> Just so much fun. Oh, so there God. you go. Thank you, Ian, for that great, great post. And uh, who's talking to us, Richard? We grabbed a comment off of show 1741, the last one we did with Scott back in May of 2021, a little over a year ago. We were talking a bit about Build 2021. Yeah. We had Build 2022, which we did shows around already. This comment, again, a year old, from Majid Al-Sara, who said, uh, Hello, Carl and Richard. As usual, the show is rich in information and insightful opinions. Thanks to you and Scott for the episode. But one thing that seemed to be missing from the new updates from developer tools and services, something that was a major driver for many developers that chose the Microsoft stack at the beginning of their careers, uh, I've always uh, thought about shortening the dev cycle and the change to feedback and development is key to productivity. And I'm always looking for elements to make that go even faster. The thing I'm missing is a design view for web applications. 
<laughs> oh boy. Yeah, I know it won't be 100% a- accurate, but at least it's instantaneous in the de- in the dev cycle. I'm flipping back and forth between a design viewpoint and then uh, and what the user would look at rather than looking at code. Web design is more art than programming and designing with a save refresh page cycle for every change is like a painter turning off the lights, doing some squiggles, then turn the lights back on to see what happened. <laughs> I hope that Microsoft creates a designer for all web application types, especially Blazor. I expect mm-hmm. a flood of new developers and students at the beginning of the development careers will jump onto it the same way I did back in the early 2000s with web forms. Mm-hmm. Blazor designer. Yeah. Not going to happen. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, there you go. Well, what Majid. size hex wrench are you using right now, Scott? <laughs> I'm not sure, but the the, the cha- you know the the challenge on the on the designer problem uh, is we can make something that renders the page layout exactly what it's going to look like. We can give you kind of a preview view. That's that's easy for us to do, but when you drag something, you want it to stick where you put it. Yeah, and that's impossible. Yeah, where does it go? That's the wrong way to build web. So the the, yep. the designers of old, what they actually did is they use CSS and actually put X Y coordinates. Onto yeah, the actual good. things, and it's, it's just no good. And exactly, and so that's that's why we don't have a designer for Blazor or a designer for Web, is because that's the tricks you have to use, and that's why all the kind of visual designers over time disappear. But we did add Hot Reload right. in .NET six, so at least it's not that cycle of open close, open close, open close anymore. It really should be get the app running, make change, refresh, make change, refresh, make change, refresh. Yeah. And it's not just CSS, it's code and, and everything. Yeah. It's great. Yeah. And so I would love to be able to do a designer. The The web just doesn't support it. The only thing we could ever do, we could build controls like a stack layout. And right. as long as you put your Blazor components in the stack layout, we could give you kind of a design view. But you know, most requests feature of all time. And and, and I, I, would, I, I don't even want to do designers for like Maui in the long run. I'd right like now, to get yeah. Maui to a point where... It's the same hot reload refresh that you kind of see. Um, imagine Maui without having XAML. Um, we, we'd love to do a Maui that actually uses Blazor-style syntax, um, which then would simplify the markup enough that it would be very easy to you know, keep the whole page on the screen at the same time. So, uh, you mean a native Maui, not a, not a hybrid? Because we have yep. a hybrid Maui with Blazor, yeah. I, uh, I, I know exactly your, what you're talking about here. The absolute positioning is just a pain. And anything that injects itself in any way in terms of style, like padding, absolute positioning, whatever, just gets in the way. Like, it's all you know, I've, got, I've got a customer that's completely designed their layout, you know, with a tool like Figma, for example. And I have to replicate that exactly. And if something is in the way, adding space and taking up stuff and being opinionated, it just it makes my job impossible. So there you go. Yeah, there you go, Majid. You know, I, I I think it's interesting to think in terms of how that how hot reload evolves that cycle, so that you're literally looking at the rendered page as you're making changes and they're appearing. I mean, I think we'll we'll get there at some point, but not going to be from the designer perspective. So thank you so much for your comment. A copy of Music Code Buy is on its way to you. And if you'd like a copy of Music Code Buy, write a comment on the website at .netrocks.com or on the Facebooks. We publish every show there. And if you comment there and I read it on the show, we'll send you a copy of Music Code Buy. And definitely follow us on Twitter. I'm at Carl Franklin, and uh, he's at Rich Campbell. Send us a tweet. There's no need to style it at all. No. Just a text, please. Uh, an H1 tag, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> I want to be loud. <laughs> but not marquee. Marquee bad. <laughs> yeah. All right. So let's formally introduce Scott with a bio that's completely outdated. So Scott Hunter was the director of program management on the .NET team at Microsoft. His team used to build .NET Framework, .NET Core, ASP.NET Entity Framework, the managed languages, web, and .NET tooling. But what are you doing now, Scott? Yeah, so the, I've, I've come full circle. For folks that don't know, um, when I joined Microsoft, I joined the ASP.NET team. Um, that was back in 2007. And then in 2010-ish, I think, Scott Guthrie, who's the EVP of cloud and AI at Microsoft, he moved to Azure. And when he did, all of the web stuff, ASP.NET, web tools, came to Azure with him. And so I spent um, a good maybe six years there. Um 
And it was great because we were there. We were able to go reboot.net. Yeah. Um, cause we were outside of the .net org in some cases. We were in the web, in the cloud. But in that time, I worked on Azure SDKs. I worked on Azure App Service, Azure Functions, a uh, variety of those things. And that tech all came back to DevDiv, um, uh, last year. And so it's kind of, I'm kind of full circle where I'm working back on, um, the Azure Pass. That's our web apps, app service, uh, container apps, functions. Uh, our team builds all the dev tools for Azure, uh, both in Visual Studio, the NVS Code, um, and we build the SDKs for Azure as well. And there's a ton of developer services too, things like Redis Cache. Uh, there's a new Grafana service coming out uh, in Azure. Um, all come from from our work, Azure Spring Cloud. Uh, so it's a bunch of cloud, a um, bunch of paths, um, and developer tools. And so it keeps me hooked up with you know, all my friends in .NET, because we have to make sure the .NET runs great in these, wor- in these worlds. So it's, uh, um, but, it, but it feels like it's full circle. I'm, I'm now I'm back to cloud. And I wonder if like in six years, I'm, I'm back to .NET again. So it'll be uh, yeah. six more years. Things go, things go in cycles. Yeah, without a doubt. You know, it is. I, I can't think that far out, Richard, actually. So it's, no, who can, who <laughs> can? I, I don't know. What do I know? Or maybe I'll have the, maybe I'll have the .NET book done by then. I hope so. Cause I have to, I have to have the, the, uh, my, the Hunter supplement to that book has to come out as well. So, ah, right, yes, the things you Scott held Hunter back unplugged. on me with uh, uh, about when we were doing the interviews. <laughs> There's nothing I held back on. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you casually said Spring Cloud for Azure. That's that's Java stuff, isn't it? It is Java stuff. Hmm. Um, even a lot of folks don't even realize that even when I was working on .NET. Um, the team I was part of, we built all the languages and frameworks for DevDiv. So right. we built um, our own JVM. There's a there's a, the Microsoft build of the OpenJDK. Um, mm-hmm. I'm super excited about that, just primarily because um, you know we went through a, a phase years and years ago, J kind of Microsoft forked version of Java. Right. Um, it's great to be part of the real Java community this time. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of folks don't realize this, but the uh, Apple M1 support for the Java OpenJDK came from Microsoft. Hmm. The uh, the uh, support for uh, Windows ARM 64 uh, in the in the OpenJDK came from Microsoft. So if you're using Oracle Java on a Mac, it only works because of us. And so that's where wow. you know we as an organization are giving back to the Java community. Uh, we've actually joined the, the Java community process. That's how you actually get standardized changes into into Java. And, you know, I, I told, I told uh, the people in the Java team, my dream would be to go take something like Hot Reload that we did in .NET and give it to Java in the long run. Wow. Um, that'd, be, that'd be wild. But that that's, would be wild. That's going- Java moves at a slower pace. Mm-hmm. But I thought Hot Reload was really a function of Visual Studio, wasn't it? Isn't it? It's, it's, it's a function of both Visual Studio and it's a function of code that we actually put in .NET Framework way, way, way back in the day. Hmm. So there's a feature in .NET called Edit and Continue. Um, and the way Edit Continue works is we have to have some way, you've got a running application. How do we insert new code into the running application? So there's some low-level APIs in .NET that let you actually inject code into a running application. And so okay. um, what Hot Reload is actually doing is uh, you make a change Visual Studio goes and takes that change and sends it down into the running application. Mm. Uh, and that's why Hot Reload doesn't work in some, some situa- situations. Mm-hmm. Like if you, you know, obviously if, if main's already run and you make a change in the code in main, mm. well, that's, you're not going to see that. Uh, there's right. some, some, ca- some cases where a language feature doesn't let us do the injection yet. Also, I noticed that if you have a class library or a Blazor component as a, a shared, as a, as a project reference, right? And you're in hot reload in the application, and then you change something in that project, it's not going to show up because it's already compiled. It's already built in. Right. Yeah. So you're saying that if Java needs to implement hot reload, they would have to do it um, at the JVM level. The, the level, but also at the level of the, the IDE. The IDE has to support it. The IDE has to support it too. But remember, even Hot Reload and .NET works from, from .NET CLI as well. Yeah. You can do .NET Run Watch. Mm. Um, and if you do that, Hot Reload will be active there as well. And so in that case, it's a little less granular. So here's the way to think about it. If you're in, if you're in uh, the, the CLI, you make a change. Well, we see that, we see the, that the file changed. 
Mm. And we recompile the whole file and we inject the changed file into the application. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're in the IDE, it's more granular than that. It's actually faster than that as well. Because in, in the IDE, um, in many cases, uh, we will just inject the stuff that you changed. If you changed one thing, well, we know what you changed. And yeah. so we can go inject the, the, in, that direct change. And so it fast, in some ways, Visual Studio is faster. Um, it's got a tighter loop than because it doesn't have to do the whole file. Um, but so I think you could do, we could do Java without having to have an IDE, but obviously the IDE hooks will make it faster. Yeah, and certainly virtual. And, and we cheat as well. I, I, I don't know if we're still cheating, but we hacks, hacks that we do, we've done in the past is, you know, the Visual Studio is doing IntelliSense. Mm-hmm. Uh, IntelliSense requires us to compile the code. Right. So in many cases, we actually just take the, take the, the, the comp- compiled code from IntelliSense and then insert that directly into the application. Mm-hmm. So it, it, it takes even another step away. There's no co- compilation required. In the case of the CLI, a, comp- a compilation step is going to have to happen. In the case of the IDE, no compilation has to happen because it just happened ba- in the background for yeah, okay. you. That's it's cool. already happened. Yeah, you, you did it to do validation. Well, and back to Majid's point, it's like, why would you make a designer if you can actually continuously view the app live while you're making changes to it. Yeah. It, so it, you essentially have the app running and you're now you're editing code and seeing the changes appear in the app that's running. I was going to say, you know, that I, I almost had this comment earlier on the, on the, on the, on the hot reload stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, if you look at the Android ecosystem, most of the Android apps don't run well on the tablets. And uh, that's why the Android tablet ecosystem is not nearly as, as successful as it could be. And it's partially for these exact reasons. These the apps that were designed for Android are all designed uh, with pixels uh, in in meant to go in some place. And so you make the screen three times as big, and it, the app just kind of looks like a little postage stamp sitting on the on the thing. And so it's more reason um, not to use designers because they they lock you to. Mm-hmm. Um, Apple was was more successful getting people to start moving to things like stack layouts and stuff like that that would actually adopt to uh, changing screen resolutions. Right. Mm. Especially the uh, Kindle Fire. Oh, my God, what a pain that thing is. <laughs> it's like a toy Android, an Android toy. <laughs> Android with brain damage? Yeah, you, I mean, you can't, You in order to install regular Android apps on one of those things, you have to download, like, you, It's a sideload process, yeah. Yeah, it's like the equivalent of the registry. You have to put, like, registry keys in it and... Yeah. Now it reminds me of jailbreaking iPhones back in the day. You're basically sideloading the thing. You 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 you're doing something Amazon doesn't want you to do. Yeah. Which, by the way, will well, it's not all that be... they don't want you to do it. They just want to make it painful for you. Well, they really don't want you. I don't like it, the but... code review yeah. guy. But at the same time, it's like if you when and when you as soon as you get an update to to a fire, all that stuff gets reset. You got to yeah. redo it all. Yeah, the, the whole space is, is is scary there as well. I was going to say the the other problem you have with the fires is is they also you just can't port an Android app there because if the Android app uses any of the Google Play APIs, um, those APIs are not available in the open source Androids. That, right. th- the, the things like Fire the Fire runs on, which by the way is also a challenge for us with Maui um, as well. If you want to if you want to use the you know there's an Android. Um, Subsystem, there's a subsystem for Android and Windows now. So you can actually run native Android apps on Windows 11. I don't know if anybody's tried it on the call. I don't know if Richard's tried it or not. Nope. But it's really, really good. It's kind of like WSL, which is the Windows subsystem for Linux. But in this case, it's actually um, Android. And so if you're doing .NET MAUI development on your Windows PC, uh, there's no need to use an Android emulator anymore. You can actually go right to the... Um, Android system for Windows, super, super fast. Um, and so you can find it today. Uh, I think you just go to the Windows store and look for the Amazon store, the same the same, same store you would actually get some of those Kindle apps from. Um, and uh, that will then install the substance for Android. And you can run native and- Android apps right on the desktop, right next to your Windows apps. Yeah, that's a secure yeah, cool. come true. Oh, they run in. They, they're it's virtualized, Carl. It's it's not like that, sir. Oh, that's good. Very good. I'm glad to hear that. But also, yeah, it just I sort didn't... of speaks to you living in Azure land. Like you're not just about .NET. Whatever will run on Azure, you care about. Yeah, we we even even if you think about .NET, when we go and actually talk to our real .NET customers, almost none of them are 100% .NET. 
Right. Most companies are running some Java. They're running some .NET. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're running a variety of different techs. And so, uh, yeah, there's there's not many pure anythings. Right. Yes. And, and one of our, one of our goals, and it's a real real solid goal, is how do we, you know, one of the benefits of, of .NET is because we because our team, the ASP.NET team, worked in the Azure team. It's got great tooling. You know, literally, we we found out it's actually faster to install VS twenty twenty two and publish your first ASP.NET ASP.NET application to Azure than it would be to download um, all the tech required to publish a Python app, for example, a Flask app. Right. Once you install the two VS Code extensions, the Azure CLI, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, you're at 30 minutes. And so one of the things that we had, we announced in private preview at Build, and I can send you the URL, is the new Dev CLI. And the Dev CLI works across all languages. And what it does, it's a single file that you can just install in like 10 seconds. And then from that sample file, what it, what it does is it looks at conventions. There should be a folder with the publishing assets. There should be a folder with the environments. An example of an environment is I have a connection string to a database locally. When I move it to the cloud, I need a connection string somewhere else. And so the uh, CLI can detect any code that has those special folders in it. And with that, you can basically clone a repo from GitHub in any language, .NET, Node, Python, um, you can then run a command and we'll go create all the assets in Azure for you, run another command. We'll publish the app up to Azure. And one final command, you can run the, our monitor command and we'll launch the portal into the monitoring tools for your application. Nice. And so we're finding ways to take any app, node, Java, .NET, Python, and get them into the cloud easier and faster with less hassle. But also give us insights into it as well. You know, one of the things I like about building .NET in the cloud is you can you poke pretty deeply into the .NET layer and can tell me a lot about what's going on in my app. You could do that with all those layers eventually. Yes. Um, in fact, we have some of that tech for, for Java today. So when we built our first uh, OpenJDK, which was a couple of years ago, um, we acquired a company uh, as part of that. And that company has some really cool tech that uh, you can run against Java applications and get a ton of insights on you know how to make them run well in the cloud, for example. Right. How much, how much CPU do you need? How much memory do you need? Um, it'll, it'll help give you that so you can actually optimize the app and make the app run really, really well in Azure. And so, and we hope to open source that tech and make that tech available to more people in the future. That's cool. Hey, hey Richard, uh, let's do a poll, a couple of informal polls here with our list. I want to take the questions that are already in there. Yeah, sure. All right. Uh, Callie Hope is asking, would this uh, ability to load these other stacks replace something like BlueStacks, which is uh, a gaming engine, if I if I understand? Do you know BlueStacks, Scott? Uh, Scott, I do. I do not. Yeah. I th- oh, you know what it is? It's, it's an emulator for running games, so it's a way to run Android and things like that. But there's also the Windows subsystem for Android, right? Yeah, that's what I was. I, I'd recommend the Win- Windows subsystem for Android in this case. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's actually built for Windows. As opposed to, I think BlueStacks. It's it's built for Windows. It's it's running in a in a in a, in a proper VM. I don't I, I don't know how BlueStack works, but it runs in a proper VM, which means stuff stuff can't leak out of that VM. So right. a, a rogue Android app couldn't take over your Windows machine, for example. Yeah, it looks like we, like we, BlueStacks we, is an emulator. Yeah, that's what it looked like to me too. Looked like a game emulator. And Dave Ackroyd in the chat asks: Is is part of the problem with getting Android apps onto Windows the access to Google services? Yes, that's the that's the negative. That's the only that's the only really negative you have from running uh, the Android subsystem for 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 uh, Windows is obviously it's not going to have Google Play, just like the 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 Amazon Store doesn't have Google Play. That's why the Amazon Store is actually uh, the mechanism to get the Android apps onto Windows because anything that's in the Android Store should, I mean the the uh, the Amazon Store should run on Windows. Right, should be in the operative word. Is that something that? Um we're we're looking at doing google services in the future on windows somehow that would be a that 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 would be a contract with google and us yeah and does that mean that it's not going to happen or i i i do not know your pay grade kind of thing you're 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 be you're beyond me we'd have to go talk to the the folks in windows as we have to go talk to and see if that's a a thing that they're trying to do yeah we um you know i was mentioning polls before richard We, Mm -hmm. we sort of are supposed to do some polls to do some more interactive things 
So I was thinking of a couple one, like how many listeners are pure.net? How many devs deploy solely with to Azure as their cloud provider versus, you know, other cloud providers? We get asked a couple of those. Now, I don't, I'm not saying put the answers in the chat. We actually have a polling mechanism. So Richard can uh, pull that up. Yeah, it just takes a while to build them. So we might want to do that for the next show. Oh, okay. All right. Well, we'll do some polls with Kathleen. Yeah, anyway. for sure. And I put the ask out to her. And uh, we'll we'll figure it out. All right. uh, okay. So we t- I mean we talked a lot about Java. We've talked a lot about Android, which is kind of a subset of Java is Java ish, you know. And certainly, yep, in, very Java ish. And then poking into the runtimes like that, so that we get good instrumentation, I think is is really interesting. I think it got it's got to be tougher for something like, or is it going to be tougher for something like Node? Because then you're just you're watching the JavaScript runtime, right? Yeah, it's it's. Uh... There are hooks to let us watch those kinds of things as well. So I don't see why we couldn't do that, that too. Um, you know, once again, I, I have not looked at the, the hooks for uh, JavaScript, but I know they're good enough that we can build pretty dang, pretty dang good debuggers and stuff. Right. Anywhere you can make a good deb- debugger, you ought to be able to make uh, good instrumentation, good insights. Exactly. So, yeah, that kind of makes sense. In many cases, that's what we do anyways. Is we, we actually, We're actually taking the... The bug hooks to actually do a lot of the stuff we do already. You know, I saw the other day uh, somebody tweeting about how the Microsoft development stack was still not open because the .NET debugger wasn't open source. Oh, that's a popular topic. Is it? <laughs> um, yeah, it's, it's, it's the, you know, if you wanted the f- full Nirvana, um, you know, why is the debugger the only part of .NET that's not open source? And by the way, I want to say, because it's not open source doesn't prevent you from running a debugger. No. So if you use Writer from JetBrains, they wrote their own debugger using the same debugger interfaces that exist in .NET. Right. So it's not like you can't write debuggers. It's just we don't give the debugger away for free. It's part of Studio. Yeah, it's that's uh, proprietary tech uh, mm-hmm. from Visual Studio. And the reality is we have the best debugger in the world. Mm-hmm. And uh, we have Linux developers that use our C++ tools uh, to build Linux apps because... The debugger is so good, and it works so well. And uh, so I, I personally don't think it's a terrible thing that we're not giving away the debugger. Um, there are samples that, that are out there from us in the past that show you how to do very very minimal-ish debuggery kinds of things. Right. Those samples are how JetBrains kind of built their debugger. But the fact that JetBrains was able to build their own full-featured debugger shows you that we're not preventing anything. We're just not giving away the Visual Studio IP as part of that, you know, the open source of .NET. Right. And by the way, you know, that's not part of .NET. .NET just exposes the debugger interfaces. You know, it's up to whoever implements those interfaces to decide whether they want to give that code away. I'm, and, I'm pretty but, sure JetBrains doesn't give their debugger away either. Right. Yeah. <laughs> well, and, and you mean, you can debug in Visual Studio Code. Like, what debugger is Visual Studio Code using? Yeah, it's not, it's, 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 uh, it's, Using a lighter weight uh, version of the debugger, um, I think we stole that one from uh, uh, Mono Development at one point. Or oh, yeah. um, I, f- I forget. It actually is the real proper debugger. Actually, I'm just trying to think. Uh, probably a good time to take yeah. a break. Yeah, so let's do we'll that. Be back right after this important message. Hey, this is Carl, and if you haven't heard my new podcast, Security This Week, you're missing out on an extremely serious look at the week's hacks and what they mean to you. Check out this little clip to get a hint of the searing insights you'll get by listening to Security This Week. If three people have a secret and two are dead, you can keep the secret. Remember that. (laughs) (laughs) More wisdom from Patrick Hines. Thank you very much. I think that's a Russian proverb, actually. (laughs) Yeah, I know a lot of people who open a bazillion tabs and never actually reboot and just keep it all open. Who would do that? I could give names, but <laughs> I think I'm guilty of that. <laughs> yeah, we should be uh, rebooting every day. I reboot every day. Yeah, honestly, I yeah, add that and your cell phone once a week. Those are yep. um, those are some strong recommendations. You should reboot every day, and you should shower every day, whether you need it or not. That's your STW homework, <laughs> kids. <laughs> <laughs> but if you get to pick one, reboot. Reboot <laughs> 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 over shower. <laughs> Ew. So I plugged in my webcam. And it didn't work. 
So I unplugged it, plugged it in, couldn't get it to work. So I had this other webcam that I bought. It's kind of a no-name webcam, you know? I think it was made in China. Or Moscow. And I got it because it it was cheap. (laughs) And I plugged it in, and all of a sudden, I looked like a colorized Ted Turner movie. (laughs) It works great. It looks terrible. (laughs) What you'll find is a great feature of that camera is there's no turning it off. Oh, yeah. It's wonderful. (laughs) It's actually 4K, so you get twice the size of crap. (laughs) go to securitythisweek.com or listen however you get your podcasts you'll thank me later hi this is carl we unfortunately had a little bit of technical difficulty with this recording so for the next part you're going to hear a difference in the audio quality but we wanted to include it anyway because we wanted you to hear the whole interview so sorry about that and we'll be better at it next time all right, we're back. I'm Carl Franklin. That's uh, Rich Campbell, my hey, friend over there. How you doing? And our friend Scott Hunter. We're talking about tooling, and we just put up a poll for the Bullhorn users. What cloud provider do you use? Seventy-five percent Azure, twenty-five percent AWS. Right. And of GCP is zero. Yeah, no multi-select options. So if they are using a mix, it's hard. We can't tell. That's that's right. a separate issue. Okay. Writing good polls is hard. It's true. What we what we find is is typically GCP tends to cater towards people that are right out of college, right? And mm. while Azure and AWS will will tend to to be more in established companies. Hmm, that's interesting. It's, it's, it, I've also always thought of GCP as really a um, a Silicon Valley centric product. Yeah, and so you know when when you're when you're down in the Silicon Valley for whatever reason, and I don't recommend that. Uh, those folks talk about GCP all the time. It's like it's the number two down there, AWS being dominant, and everywhere else it's Azure AWS. But, yeah, but it, it, that's a, that, that's a challenge for both AWS and Azure, though. Is we how do we how do we you know attract that that that, that newer audience, that that uh, other audience? Right. Is uh, somebody spray painting your bureau? Uh, that's tape being done. Oh, tape. Yeah. Okay. You, you just, That's you, the joys of actually doing is, a call with you folks. Wow, this is great. Is <laughs> yeah, it's it's the rustic edition of uh, Scott Hunter's house. Yeah. It's uh, <laughs> yeah. Someday we'll do all. a show with Brian Harry while he's actually shearing sheep. You know, we'll get that <laughs> get the full effect. I was I was thinking on the tr- in the tractor. I mean, it's like uh, we we would we would actually be in in meetings, and Brian's like, "Hey, folks, I have to drop. I have to go jump in the tractor." And we're like, "Okay, <laughs> what are you gonna do?" What do, you, what do you say? Uh, well, and I, I happen to know you've moved far enough out of the uh, out of the countryside. I think you, the whole reason you're doing it is for the riding mower. That's what that's about. You need enough <laughs> you have land. To have, you have to have an excuse to have new toys. Yeah. So it, uh, yeah. So Scott, I'm not clear. Is this? Are you in your new house right now, or are you moving? This is your current house, and you're this, moving. This is the house we're leaving. Okay. And so what actually happened was they were supposed to move us tomorrow. Um but they had an opening and they said, do you want to go now? And once you're in the state of being half moved. Yeah. Sooner is always better. Yeah. Just get it over with. And so I pinged Richard this morning and said, Hey, sorry, but I'm going to (laughs) be, it's going to be different. Yeah. (laughs) Not your usual show. (laughs) Not your usual show. Now, when I think about sort of the, the other side of Azure tooling is all the pipeline stuff. Right. The, the, and although these days the focus seems to be less Azure DevOps and more focused on GitHub Actions. We, 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 I think we over talk about GitHub Actions. I mean, that's one of the, one of the negatives of the tech community all up is we always talk about our newest wares. So, sure. you know, if you're talking about .NET, you're probably talking about Maui or Blazor. Um, it's amazing when, when we go in the .NET space and we go write a, a blog post about like the garbage collection. We're like, wow, that's amazing. Um, these are all things that, you know, Carl, Richard, you know, we've, we've been talking about for 15 years. And so we are 20 years and we don't think about it that much. But if you're brand new to, to coding, you don't know what garbage collectors are, no. how types magically disappear into memory and stuff like that. And so um, we tend to over over say GitHub Actions. I think you're going you're gonna to start hearing us say um, Azure DevOps uh, in, in most of those cases as well. In some cases where we might have some tooling in VS that is actually little little over-centric towards GitHub Actions, I think you're going to start seeing the ASDO versions of those things as well. Um, because the reality is, just like changing from .NET Framework to .NET 6, 
you don't do those things overnight. You don't change from, you know, Azure DevOps to, to GitHub overnight. Um, and so I, I, I think both those products live for a long, long time. Um, and many customers, like I'll, I'll, I'll give you the joke of the day is .NET is built on uh, Azure Pipe. Right. Yeah. So you, you guys aren't exactly going to give up on the tool that you depend upon. No. But the motion um, does seem to be towards uh, towards GitHub Actions because it seems to be the superset, yes. right? It, it supports more stack. In the long run, that'll be the superset. That'll be the, uh, the the place to be with. Once you get to containers, though, all the stacks are kind of supported all the time. That's, yeah. really, that's really one of the cool benefits of the tech. You know, doing this 10 years ago, it would have been virtual machines and you would have had runtimes installed in the virtual machine. But now it's, um, you know, whether I'm using GitHub Actions, it's really cool in .NET just to go and change a single file. And, you know, if you go watch the thing run in the cloud, you can see uh, the, the the container actually going and running the .NET install command to install that version of .NET you asked for. Mm. Um, so it's pretty, pretty slick, slick tech. Um, I was going to say, one thing we haven't talked about that I'd love to talk about is, is container apps. Sure. Sure. Yeah, yeah. Um, so container apps is, you know, one of the things that we've really seen in the in the in this space um, as of late is Kubernetes seems to be everywhere. And I think Kubernetes is everywhere because it's it's cloud neutral and vendor neutral. So it right. doesn't feel like you've put yourself into an ecosystem. Um, and so we see lots and lots of interest in, hey, I want to run my thing on, on Kubernetes. Mm. Um, now, what's cool is that, that's cool and crazy at the same time. Uh, to me, Kubernetes is like, wow, you go create one of these things and there's a whole bunch of VMs and pools of VMs and stuff like that. That's it's it's a lot of stuff. Yeah, it it dev, it ups the complexity level. Yes. You're running a Kubernetes cluster. Um it's got an orchestrator that's actually orchestrating your containers. Um you know, some of that stuff's great. It's doing health checks. It's making sure things are running and they're alive. Mm. Um but, you know, I'm a coder. I want to write code and get my code running in the cloud. Uh so we shipped um and GA at build uh, in May, we ship con Azure Container Apps, and Azure Container Apps is actually built on AKS. So it is you're running real Kubernetes, um, except we don't expose the, expose the actual cluster to you. We don't expose all the orchestrators and all that kind of stuff. We we manage that for you. Nice. And so the, the so the benefit there is you don't have to worry about managed Kubernetes anymore. Um, you can just worry about you know building your containers and getting your containers ready. Uh, and so. Uh, we give you all the scale features uh, and th there's an amazing scale feature. This is my favorite feature. This is, I was talking to one of the engineers last week and, and she was the one that told me this. And I, uh, one of the features that, that container apps has a scale to zero, which sounds amazing. It's like, Hey, if my app's not very busy, we'll just turn it off. But how long does it take to boot back up once you turn it all the way off? Mm -hmm. um, the cool thing about container apps is it has another feature called scale to idle. And so once we scale you to idle, uh, your container app costs you probably about $10 a month. Wow, but so, you're, but it's live a, still. So, it'll but it's live. It'll instantly. take a request as soon as possible. So, if you're doing, you know, stuff that's like eventing kind of stuff, uh, it's not going to cost you a lot of money to run container apps. Um, and that's to me, that's the cool part of the tech is uh, you just give us your container, we can let you scale it up and down, and we're slowly giving you some of those app service features as well. So, one of my favorite app service features is being able to say nobody can hit my app unless they are in this domain. Mm -hmm. when, I mean, when I mean domain, I don't mean .com domain. I mean in an Azure Active Directory domain. So it's mm -hmm. like, I don't, as a developer, I don't have to worry about telling my team, go write all the auth code in your app so your app does the right thing. Right. You, know, you just check a box and we protect the entire thing. And so that, those are the kinds of PASI features that we have, um, you know, in app PASI. service. And you're going to see it. We're going to slowly PASI platform as a service. Yeah, you get it. A it's, a, um, it's a great adjective. That's the first time I've heard it. <laughs> um, and so that's our, our, our goal is to say that you're still on real Kubernetes. Um, you just worry about your code, not about all the infrastructure. Mm -hmm. And we're going to give you some of those past features that, uh, make the platform super awesome. Um, and it gets really, really cool, uh, soon when we have arc support. So Azure arc is, uh, some really cool tech that lets you take, uh, any of the Kubernetes based, uh, Azure tech and run it anywhere. So imagine you want to run a container app on-premise. Hey, I'm a, on the bank and there are certain, or on a medical operation and there's some part of, um, 
you know, of, of the app. I don't trust being in the cloud or, or by regulation, I can't put it in the cloud. Well, you can go run uh, that container app on your local hardware. What if you need to have a backup and, and uh, uh, you want to make sure that if one cloud goes down, you've got another cloud there. You can take the Azure Architect and you can go run it in uh, AWS or GCP. Uh, right. The cool thing is you still manage your app completely from the Azure portal, just like you did before. Those things just show up and, and you get new regions uh, that are basically the, the, the other clouds. Um, and so I am just super excited about what we can do with the tech. Um, you know, with this stuff. And so container apps to me are, um, I want to be, I want to know that I'm running on modern Kubernetes, um, but I don't want to know all the, all the, all the implementation details. We're still going to give you lots of scaling and scale up, scale down kind of capabilities. Um, you're going to be able to scale further than you could with even an app service. Um, and at the same time, at some point, we'll give you the ability to say, Hey, I want to hop out of container apps into yeah. real Kubernetes. If you want, if you want to run into a, in a real cluster for whatever reason, uh, we want to make it like you didn't have to choose door A or door B. You know, I can walk in door A and decide to walk out of door A and go back into in, into door B. So we're going to make it very easy to move back and forth between the different environments. And so I'm this whole space just fascinates me. It's it's uh, no, the, and it you know, sounds cool like the correct tooling solution is give me an easy way in making correct default decisions on containers. And then when the app hits a certain scale or a certain point where it's like, okay, well, we need to change this, you pop it out of the easy mode and into standard Kubernetes where you can do what you want with it. Exactly. So, yeah, if you – or imagine this. Your company gets bigger, you hire a full ops team, and they want to go manage the cluster manually. Yeah. Then you move it over there, and they can manage it, manage it manually. Yeah. Um, um, yeah. The the other cool part of the container app tech – and this, this is a – um, I'd, I'd love to see if you get any questions from the, from the podcast about this, but one of the things that's always been interesting to me is when I, when I go talk to real customers, it re they want all their stuff to be on the same network. Right. Um, so you're, you're in Azure and you've, you've got a web app, you've got a function app, they run on different virtual machines. And so they're not actually on the same network. So with, if they talk to each other, technically the, the request goes up to the Azure network, goes across and comes back down and whatever the, the other one is, um, but almost all the companies that I ever talked to, they hate the fact that the traffic went up somewhere into the public, um, even though it's it's not viewable. Nobody can see it. No, um, they want it all to be on the on the same actual network. Yeah, uh, kind of like, like when we built, you know, before I joined Microsoft and I built backend services. Yeah, you could you could go in the in the in a room in the building and they're all there and the network tables are plugged together. They can all see each other, um, and so this becomes a a big request that people have. And one of the cool things that we have in container apps is any container running in container apps is on the same network. Right. Because you're in a you're in a cluster. And so our, our long term goal is to take things like functions, web apps, whatnot, and have them all running inside of container apps. So you, you build a container app environment, you can run two containers, a web app and two functions. I think that answers Dave's question. Does container app restrict using uh, the cloud native services. So you, you want that goal that yeah. that's the goal. Yeah. You may not be there yet, but ultimately all cloud native stuff should be available. Um, and we might even build a proxy in there to make it look like it's all in the same network today. What you have to do is you have to use premium SKUs of Azure. You have to create what's called a virtual network. Yeah. Um, that's complicated tech. Once again, my, mm -hmm. my job is to make the things you want to do not complicated and still give you the perf and the speed and all the security that you would want as a, as a developer. And so um, we're super excited about saying, Hey, yeah, I, I've done a show on run as about private networking inside Azure, not for the faint of heart, but it's doable. No. Like if you want to take control of all of those things, but yeah, re it's a really interesting insight for me that folks are unhappy when they realize how much additional networking they have to do in an Azure app alone, just to deal with all the different services that are out there. It's, it's crazy, but as I said, this is where customers want to be, and so mm -hmm. it, it's our job to go make this easier for easier for customers to want to be there. So that's that's. Uh, um, See, we still need IT people, and, <laughs> and, and we and we haven't even got to tooling. I mean, you know, everybody that's a, a .NET person, and I, I assume Ty has been talked about on this show before. I might have talked about .NET Ty a little bit in the past. .NET Ty, do I know about this? What's .NET Ty? So uh, Ty was a project we started a year or two ago and we were thinking about cloud-native apps. And so, hey, a modern web app should have a front-end app. Maybe that's your Blazor app. It's got a back-end app with some APIs inside of that. 
it's a multi-part app. And we recognize that uh, um, our tools are clunky for those types of apps. If you're in, if you're in Visual Studio, there is the ability to start multiple projects, but it slows everything down. You might be better off just having two Visual Studios, one with the front end, one in the back end. Um, VS Code's got the same kind of challenge. There's not good ways to start all of them. Uh, what you probably do is you maybe have a terminal and you have different tabs and you run one one project in one tab, one project in another tab. And so the primary basis behind Ty was to actually describe the application. Right. Um, we need a file that tells us where are all the pieces. And so uh, there's a there's a file called a tie.yaml file and you basically give it a, uh, you can point it to a csproj, you can point it to a container. Uh, so like, for example, maybe I've got an, an app that's got a front end, a back end and a Redis cache. Well, the front end, the back end, they're written in .NET. I just point to the CS projects for those. And for the, the, the Redis, I just give it a, a pointer to a container, uh, the Redis container image. And that single file, uh, with the tie, tie tools knows how to go boot all those things up. Right. When you, when you do a tie run, we run the front end, the back end, and we would start the container for your Redis cache. Um, Ty also solves the discovery problem. Once you have multiple apps, and it doesn't matter if you're doing Node or Python or .NET, well, what are the ports and IPs of each of the running apps? Um, you're going to go hard code all this stuff across all the apps. Ty has service discovery built into it. So you just basically say, by the name of the project, I want to talk to the front end or I want to talk to the back end. And we did the magic to, to convert those, those words back into the actual real ports and stuff like that. Um, and this is cool because when we publish it to the cloud, we do that same work for you. And so you don't have to go to Azure portals and find out what the IPs or the domains and stuff of all the parts are. And so it solves running a multi-part application. It solves um, being able to run some of the parts in containers versus actual local code. It solves service discovery. Um, and, 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 uh, um, it also solves the publish aspect as well. So you can actually publish uh, to the cloud, the tie. Um, the dev CLI, which I mentioned earlier, which we kind of started off with saying, it, hey, it's a great way to go get stuff. And it's got conventions with bicep files to go build the stuff in the cloud. Um, the next stage for the dev CLI will be able to take these tie capabilities and put them in as well. And so imagine having this really, I can imagine being on the, on the show, you know, in the future, and we can talk about, hey, we've got this application. It's got a, a legacy Java backend. It's got a .NET backend, a Python backend, a, a Node frontend. And all those parts can see each other and talk to each other. Uh, and, and, and they're easy to run and easy to get to the cloud. That's our, that's our nirvana. And right. then get that support into Visual Studio and into Visual Studio Code. So um, that, to me, is the exciting part about the Azure work that we're doing now is, you know, we have a mature cloud. We have mature tools. We have great frameworks. Let's find ways to make all that stuff work better together. Scott, what's next in your inbox? What's on your to-do list after the move anyway, you know, <laughs> at, at your job? Um, Job-wise for us, um, really the, the next thing is to, I said, we ship con Azure container apps and we've got that out the door. Uh, the next big thing for us really is going to be turning that into a real platform. And I'll give you what I mean by platform. Uh, I also cringe when I think of containers. So imagine you're a .NET developer and you, you build your ASP.NET 6 application, you put it in a container and you upload it to Azure and you're good to go. And uh, what happens when we uh, release a new patch version of .NET 6 every month? What happens to your app? Right. Hmm. It's yeah. still running in some virtual machine that you cranked up uh, uh, two or three months ago. Mm -hmm. And yeah. it's, it's, it's not secure anymore. And so, well, it's, it's not up to the latest version, but you know, I kind of like that it's in a protected environment where I, I know what bits it's running. I, me too. That's, that's the weird thing. App service, Azure app service is amazing because it's a, it's a pass platform as a service. It does runtime patching for you automatically. It does mm -hmm. OS patching for you automatically. But the, the challenge there is it's great to be patched, but I can't control when that thing's going to patch me. And so, I might get surprised by a patch some month right? and uh, maybe I have a problem. I love containers because I don't have to worry about that anymore because I know that I, I told it which version of .NET I wanted for this app and, and I gave it all those parameters. Um, but I would love to give you a, a patching capability on container apps where, hey, we've detected that your base OS image is stale or we've detected that the 
runtime that you're using is stale? And if so, we can, you know, if you, once again, if you have a CI CD pipeline uh, in, in ASDO or GitHub, we can go build, rebuild the container for you. Um, and so imagine from the dashboard, you could say, hey, I do want to take the March update for .NET 6. And you push the button, we rebuild your containers, mm-hmm. you try it, you go, looks good, works, happy, I'll move on. Or you say, oh, it doesn't work. Great, I'll stay on the older version for a little bit longer while I figure this out. So I want to give you all those patching capabilities that we had in Azure App Service, but I want to give them to you in a much better way where you can control when they actually happen for you. So, um, and that's just one example of the platform work we plan to do for container apps. We planned, as I said, we want to get functions, web apps running on this tech. Um, and so that's going to be my, my, my next big thing over the next couple of months is, uh, turning, you know, container apps into a full developer platform and then, uh, you know, taking our dev CLI and getting it to a point where running and building multi-part apps locally and in the cloud is, is super simple. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. Hey man, thank you for, uh, taking time out of your, uh, move to talk to us. It's, it's been a lot of fun. It's always fun talking to you, but. The, the the move uh, added a, another dimension to .NET Rocks today. So, and <laughs> of course, thanks for being awesome and being with us today. Thanks for having me every time. I always enjoy being on the show. I can't believe it's been a year. Wow, that's uh, yeah, the year flies, man. Time flies. You know why you can't believe it? Because we hang out, and we talk to each other at conferences and stuff, and it doesn't seem like it's been that long. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Thanks again. We'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Plop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got a transmitter band by the FCC.